Um, so, so we're coming to the end here of this series, The King and the Kingdom, a series to learn about who God is in a really important moment of our lives. And we learn that God is a generous creator who creates us in this world so wonderfully well, that God is a mighty savior and rescuer, particularly for the lowly and oppressed, that God is a deity who's willing to listen to God's people, to us, when we come to God in prayer. And we see the fullness of, of God's heart in God's own son, Jesus, who walked among us, the one true king. And we have a response after all, and that response is one where we give allegiance alone, the fullness, the trueness, the depths of who we are to this God who is revealed in Jesus. And we've learned how this response takes humility. And this response is challenge. We acknowledge as well that, that God puts a blessing upon and empowers the lowly in tough times and those who show God's heart. We learn that God is so good and that we are to be this human expression of God's goodness. And as we come to this end, we're, we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount again. And the Sermon on the Mount is this really important teaching. It happens alone in, in Matthew's gospel. And Matthew is intent on showing, maybe it's one thing if I can boil it down, it's that God is with us. So when we see Jesus speaking in, in the Gospels when we read it, we're supposed to see it's God speaking. When Jesus heals or is angry because of some act of injustice, it's God who's healing and is angry. And, and when we read about the life of Jesus, we trust that God is speaking to us on these words of the page through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit that is with us, working in us, and in the world around us. And we trust that God's still speaking when we come to it. Um, the Sermon on the Mount here, um, I like to think of in two kind of sections. The blessing section and the ask, ask section. The blessings are what we looked at last week, where God imparts a blessing of empowerment upon the lowly, the distressed, the little people, the powerless, those hungering for justice, those who show mercy, those who pursue good things, those who create peace. But the second part is really the lengthy part of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's, it's all about commands and is a really challenging section. For the extravagance of the blessings that happen at the beginning, there is the extravagant demands that happen. Jesus begins reiterating the law that was handed down from Moses long ago, like a thousand years before but puts a fresh take on things. For instance, you might recall uh, Jesus saying, you heard Moses say, you shall not murder, but if you are angry with somebody, you've committed murder in your heart and are liable to judgment. So what Jesus is doing in this teaching is really getting at not just the outward actions that we take, but also the inward intent. Because Jesus desires health for us inwardly, and expressions of wholeness and health as we live. And so this brings us to our passage for today. Our passage is in the ask section that Jesus says, or the command se section. And Jesus says, love your enemies. 
For weeks I've wanted to wrestle this passage out with you because this moment of life feels intense and like there is unparalleled division and divisiveness. And I hope that this reflection helps you and me as we try to navigate conflict with enemies in any season of life, but particularly right now as we head toward an election season that seems increasingly polarized day by day. But as we get into it, I don't want to pretend that I have all the answers, but I'm hopefully, hopeful that the Holy Spirit will speak words through Scripture and awaken something within you and me that creates that health that Jesus is after us experiencing and expressing. So let's read that passage, uh, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, 43 through 48. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and, your en- and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Love your enemies. Come on, Jesus. Life is hard enough, right? I sat down to think about who some of these enemies might be, and it it took a comical turn at first. For me, there's the alarm clock. (laughs) And also the sports teams in Ohio. And also, what other, whatever phantom menace always comes to steal my motivation to go to the gym. What about you? What are those funny ones that you can think of? Maybe it's that person on Carmen Road going 25 as you're trying to make your way home after a long day of work. I see you. I know you're out there. As I was, I was thinking about this, though, I realized that there were times in my life when I constantly put spaghetti in the microwave without a cover. There, I said it. I'm that person. So uh, me and all those people that put fish and microwave fish in the office uh, microwave, we're going to the bad place, aren't we? (laughs) Uh, There's no doubt there's these laughable enemies that we have in our lives. But um, I started to think about this, and there are specific groups um, that that might be warring and in conflict against one another, that have physical borders or even tribes. Uh, There is the clear enemies that we might think of, the allies against the Germans in World War II or America against Russia in the Cold War. But there are times when 
the enemy is much more complex. Certainly, the Native Americans know that well when they walk that trail of tears. Or the Lakota Sioux of Dakota, South Dakota, who had parts of their sacred land taken from them and blown up in order to create Mount Rushmore. And it's into this that I kind of insert the current political climate that we have. Democrats and Republicans, people in our nation's history that would go out to dinner with one another, could be civil, but are now at each other's throats. Families that can't even talk to each other about what they really value because oftentimes it leads to screaming matches where people go too far or horrible silences that make people feel so far from one another. And still, these hurts in American and world history make me think of my own personal enemies. Sure, there have been tiffs over the years that have been resolved, but one friendship that I can recall was particularly harmful and toxic and abusive. A friend masquerading as an enemy. I'm sure every person in here can think of one relationship, one family member, one friend, one work relationship that went south. And it doesn't take much digging to get at the very real feelings of sadness and hurt that are still there that we want to bury all over again. And even more than that, maybe like me, this past week, I turned to the uncomfortable thought that maybe I'm an enemy to somebody. Love your enemies. I want to talk about what Jesus actually means by love. In ancient Greek, there were four words for love. The first is one that you might know, eros. And this is a word that describes the romantic love between two people. There's philia, which is uh, the friendship love, the bond that two people have as friends. And uh, Philia means love in Greek, but uh, Delphos means friend um, or brother. So this is where you get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Isn't that cool? A little Greek for you. Uh, press your friends. <laughs> Third, there's Storgi. Storgi is the love a parent has for a child. And at times the, the, the pity that a parent can feel. Think, of, think about your kid. 3 a.m. throwing up in the toilet bowl and the feelings that you have, just the feeling, I wish I could help right now. That is the third one. But lastly, there's agape. Agape is the highest of loves. The unconditional divine love that Jesus shows us is the very way that God loves. It's a love that is there regardless of what we have done. A love that is pure, willful and selfless. It's not concerned with the self, but the well-being of another. It's not based on warm feelings, but rather a decision and a choice to love. Regardless of how you feel, Jesus says, love. Even if you hate them as an enemy, even if they have hurt you, even if they've destroyed something, I want you to want good things for that person. You can just feel the weight of that. 
How can you ask that of us, Jesus? It's radical now, but it was radical back then. Think about Jesus' own disciples. Within the disciples, there was Matthew, a tax collector. Jesus referenced it in the scripture passage, right? Even the tax collector. So the tax collectors were not seen as great heroes of society. They were common, the common viewpoint was that they were regarded as enemies. I mean, think of how we view the IRS, right? It's no different. But they were people who oftentimes were seen as being a cahoots with the Romans, the enemy of the Jewish people. And within Jesus' group of followers, there was not only Matthew, the tax collector, but Judas, the zealot. And the zealot wasn't just this uh, description of his own passion, but it was a group of people. It was a political party that was really intent about advancing the purposes and the cause of Israel and the Jewish people. And so you have the tax collector and the zealot in the same group. And I imagine when Jesus said, love your enemies, I imagine that Matthew and Judas gave each other that side glance and that, like, snarl thing. Like, yeah, right. Love your enemies. Before we move on about this, I wanted to take a moment to just say things that, that, that loving your enemies is not about. First, loving your enemies is, does not mean you should think nothing of people hurting you. When someone hurts you, whether it's intentional or not, it's not okay. I know that I'm really good at just kind of like pushing off any kind of hurt or letting people know about that, dismissing it. But it's actually unhelpful because that hurt's going to show up later in my life. It's going to fester and build. It's also not helpful for that other person because... They don't know that that hurt has happened. Acknowledging hurt, even when it's hard, is healthy for everyone involved. Second, loving your enemies is not a command or reason to stay in abusive situations. Jesus is always about lifting up the lowly and empowering the oppressed. And so God is opposed to any and every abusive situation. We're not called to stay in situations that compromise our physical well-being, our emotional health, our mental stability. Does God want the hearts of abusers to change? Yes, of course, but it's not your responsibility. It's God's. And so if you are in any kind of relationship like that, I just want to take a moment to say it's, it's not your job to fix somebody. It's God's. And God calls you to get up and go. Walk right out of the Egypt that you're living in. So with those guidelines set, how do we begin to think about loving those who have hurt us? I like to think of examples to really wrap my mind around it. And certainly there's Jesus, the, the OG, the, the guy who's really about that game and, and showed us the way. He authored and perfected it so many times in his life, but none more powerfully than when he was on the cross and he looked down upon the guys who mocked him and beat him and spit on him and put him up there to die and still said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. While they were killing him, he was forgiving them because he saw that they were sons and fathers and husbands. And most of all, ignorant pawns in a perilous game of political power. But beyond Jesus, I wanted to bring up uh, another example. And that's uh, Nelson Mandela. 
Nelson Mandela was the first black president of South Africa. And South Africa was colonized in the 1600s by the Dutch. And from, from that point up till today, the Dutch ancestors and the white population was always the minority in South Africa. However, like the horrible history and consequences of slavery that have gripped our nation, slavery continued to hold back the people of color in South Africa even after it ended. For instance, during the 1900s, uh, 1913, I believe it was, the government backed policies that stole land from people of color and gave it to whites. Eventually, there was economic turmoil, specifically after World War II, and because of that, there, there arose a power, the Afrikaner National Party. Afrikaner, I learned, is the term for an ethnic group that descended from the Dutch ancestors long ago. And when the Afrikaner National Party came to power, they enforced what they got elected on, which was a system of policies called apartheid, which in Dutch means apartness. In addition to insidious policies like granting 80% of the land to the white population, the Afrikaner Party sought to ensure that there would be no political takeover by dividing populations of black people into different groupings. Let's call them states. And you would have, as a black person, power, political power within those states, but you wouldn't have collective national power to vote. Nelson Mandela was a man who grew up in this context. And he actively resisted these policies and this government. And he, he opened the first black law firm in South Africa and was a member of the African National Congress, the ANC, a black political party. A little known fact about him was that he was a, a man of faith. He was baptized Methodist. Both his parents were Methodists. And he, he grew up going through uh, schooling. And it was a part of his life, his whole life. Um, and it was something that influenced him early on in the same way that it did MLK uh, because he took up this, this uh, the movement of pacifism that Jesus and Gandhi showed, and he led nonviolent protests against the government and the apartheid system. But that changed one day. It changed in 1960 when he witnessed police shoot over 60 black South Africans who were peacefully protesting. And then those the government blamed it on the ANC, the Black Political Party. So anger spilled over within Mandela, and he believed that there would be no change without strategic acts of violence against the corrupt South African government. So he left. He went to Algeria and began training for guerrilla warfare. When he came back, he was a hunted and wanted man and considered an enemy of the state. And though he never completed or carried out an attack, he was eventually arrested, tried for treason, and sentenced to life in prison. One way of looking at this is that it was a calculated and systematic step by the government to round up Mandela and other anti-apartheid leaders to put them in prison for life. While in prison, he spent 18 of 27 years in one place, Robben Island, confined to a small cell with no bed, or adequate plumbing, and he did hard labor at a quarry. 
He was only allowed to write one letter, I think every six months, and was allowed to meet a visitor for 30 minutes once a year. Can you imagine experiencing the violence and the heartache outside of prison and here in this place, the continued oppression? Can you imagine being treated like a lesser human, witnessing police officers killed, killing people for the color of their skin, witnessing brothers and sisters massacred by the government? put into prison and jailed by the government, forced into grave hardship there, too. What's amazing about Mandela is that even though he went into prison angry, he came out wise. And there's a couple things, three things, that helped him. One, he let go of hurt. Second, he learned about his enemy. And third, he put in hard work. First, he came out wise because he didn't let hurt and anger overcome him. Something he realized was this. He said, resentment. Resentment is like drinking a poison and believing that it will kill your enemies. Resentment is like drinking a poison and believing it will kill your enemies. Instead of anger, he chose love. Loving meant getting to know his enemy. And so while he was in prison... He learned Afrikaans, Afrikaans the, the language of the Dutchman, the language of the oppressor. He studied their history. He studied the apartheid system. He studied everything about his enemy. He began to see them as human. and believe gave him the compassion that moved him throughout his days of hard work. Lastly, he put in hard work. And this is where I begin to see the character of Christ really coming through. While in prison, he stood up for himself and his dignity, refusing to be bullied. And yet he went a step further by treating all others around him with respect. After his release, he sat down in talks with the president of South Africa, a man who was the enemy, and they worked out through many, many, many long hours, worked out a peace treaty and formed a new government. There was at one point when uh, Nelson Mandela had to be restrained and held back because talks had soured, but he came back to the table and they kept working at it. Letting go of anger learning about the enemy, and putting in the hard work. I bring this up and, and show him as an example and the things of Christ that, that are revealed through him because I find that for me, these are the things that I hold on to when I think about the enemies of my past. And it takes time to work through these three things. And it takes good friends and people around you to really work through that anger because it comes up again and again and again and again. But to allow anger to control, this is what Jesus is talking about, to love rather to be consumed by anger because it will destroy us and embitter us. Next, 
it's important to really think about and try to empathize and see the humanity behind the enemy. And it might be hard, and, and these are things that I'm not saying that we have to do immediately after somebody hurts us. But maybe weeks or months or years afterward, it helps to come to a point to see the humanity in another person and perhaps be able to empathize with the hurts they've experienced and have compassion for them. Lastly, to put in hard work. As I said, again and again, it takes effort to work through the anger or resentment, the forgiveness that we need to offer. And I'm not saying that it always works out and turns into a Disney movie at the ending, because oftentimes it doesn't in life. But I think this call of Jesus helps us go forward and will bring healing and wholeness to us and hopefully in some measure, God will work healing and wholeness in the enemy that we see as well. Let's pray. Lord our God, you work in mysterious and powerful and good ways. I pray for those who are here today who are hurting, who, are, who have enemies, and there is open conflict that is still such an open wound. I pray for them that your spirit would be poured out into them, a spirit of kindness and gentleness to help soothe the hurt, to help strengthen them and encourage them and build them up, to surround them with friends and people that can help them move past the hurt that can be an encouraging presence so that they don't have to, to come up against the enemy alone? Would you send those good things into those people's lives who are victims of those enemies? But I pray for the enemies too, those who actively hurt people and know it, or maybe they don't even know it. Would you work by your Holy Spirit to change the stony hearts, to break them wide open so that your grace might pour in and transform pray that and ask that boldly. And I pray that as we head toward an election that is increasingly divisive, might we find ways to see each other and have compassion. I pray that your Holy Spirit gives us courage for that challenge. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.